the Gubby Gubby are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Mali, the podcast that tells the stories of blood donors and their recipients. We thank donors and encourage people to donate blood, plasma, platelets and breast milk. If you have ever been a donor, you could be the one who saved, prolonged or improved the quality of life of the person that we profile here each week on the podcast. And becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. Just a brief message before we get into today's episode to clear up a common misconception about the Milkshakes for Mali podcast and let people know that this is not a lifeblood product and we do not receive any funding from Red Cross Lifeblood or any other external source. My husband Jeff and I volunteer our time and expertise to make this podcast to thank blood donors and to encourage new ones. We are always so deeply grateful to our guests for trusting us with their stories and for volunteering their time for interviews with us. This does, however, cost us money to make and to ensure the continuation of this podcast, we are absolutely open to private or corporate sponsorship. Please get in contact with us if you're interested. And now on with today's show. Today, we welcome Kylie Miller of Cupcake Communications to the Milkshakes for Mali community. Kylie is a journalist and an author of a series of children's books. Kylie is also a blood product recipient. Kylie suffers from an autoimmune condition not unlike Marley's called multifocal motor neuropathy, which results in progressive degeneration of muscle strength in the arms and legs. This impacts Kylie's mobility and quality of life. Treatment for Kylie comes in the form of intravenous immunoglobulin infusion, and you will hear to us hear us refer to it during this week's episode as IVIG. We recorded this episode during Plasma Donor Awareness Week, and it always fascinates me to hear stories of other Australians that are dependent on the same products that have saved and preserved Marley's life. Kylie joins us today to share her story of the wonderful things that she has been able to contribute to the Australian community as a result of being a blood product recipient. She also shares my absolute worst nightmare of arriving for the day of her infusion to be told that Victoria had run out of the blood products that she needed for her treatment and it was not available. This episode puts a whole new meaning into the phrase critical blood shortage. And we so commonly hear that in the media, but this is an example of what can really go wrong. If you've donated plasma in Victoria in the last 24 years, chances are that there is a little bit of you floating around in Kylie and she joins me today to say thank you. All right, so today we welcome blood product recipient Kylie Miller to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. So welcome to our community. Thank you very much for having me, Kate. Um, before we, just as we open the episode, um, before we get into all the nitty gritty of how you've needed all your blood products, can you tell me about what your life was like before you became unwell? Oh, look, it's a long time ago now, so I've certainly adjusted it. But um, up until the age of 30, I think life was kind of peachy. I was blissfully oblivious of what could happen. 
Um, I was very healthy. I was climbing the ladder as a journalist at the age. I was a news editor um, on the night news desk at the age and absolutely loved it. I'd lived and worked around the world before that, um, including um, for about a year and a half in Bangkok, working at the Bangkok Post. Absolutely loved my life. I used to run every morning and was very healthy. Mm -hmm. um, although also burning the candle at both ends. And now, you know, you look back at all of these things, the, the disease that I ended up being diagnosed with, for which I receive a blood product as treatment, um, is considered to be an acquired autoimmune disease. So, uh, you know, I look at absolutely everything that I might have done living my fabulous free life and wondering what I might have done to have exposed myself. But, <laughs> uh, you know, look, it was great. I don't regret anything I did and I choose not to regret anything I do now either. Yeah. Aren't you glad that you lived your life to the fullest and had all of those amazing experiences while you were able to do it so you don't look back with regret? Yes, so. absolutely. I, I, I really am because there's a lot of things now that it's uh, particularly in this pandemic world, but there are a lot of things now that I can't as easily or safely do. Mm -hmm. um, so back in the day, I did a lot of developing country, living and working and traveling. All my holidays tended to be driven by food, believe it or not, yeah. choices to, to some degree home, uh, homewares. I used to love, you know, seeing different things, experiencing different things, uh, eating everything on the street. Yeah. Um, I was never worried about that. So, you know, I went to a lot of countries like, um, you know, Southeast Asian countries, Myanmar, uh, Laos, um, South Africa. I mean, I, I travelled all around the world. So I went everywhere and I'm very glad that I did a lot of those things that I did then because I probably can't do them now. Yeah. And how grateful would you have been then to come back here and have the healthcare system in Australia to be able to help you? It's one of the things that I think uh, has been the really for me the great godsend I've got to say I'm an atheist so I use that term a little loosely but yeah. we are so lucky to have a government funded health system and also government funded blood products because if I had been born in for example the United States one of the yeah. wealthiest countries in the world I'd probably be in a wheelchair by now mm -hmm. because I couldn't afford even with health insurance the treatment that mm -hmm. I currently get for free in our yeah. health well not for free obviously I'm a taxpayer we all contribute but I don't pay anything out of my own mm. pocket for the you don't have to think get. before you rock up no, to an emergency I don't have department to think if you can afford I rock up and, and it's extremely frequent you know mm. I've been getting a blood product every two weeks or every three weeks now for I think it's 24 years coming up to 24 years in October in fact it's about the anniversary and you're based in Victoria is that right I am I'm in regional Victoria um when I first got sick, I was in Melbourne. So I had treatment for, uh, I think, about 12 years through the Alfred, which was awesome because they're a great big teaching hospital with um, a very leading team of internationally known neurologists. Mm -hmm. So I had a pretty quick uh, diagnosis, which was lucky in my case. I've got a very rare uh, nerve disease, autoimmune nerve disease called multifocal motor neuropathy which 
they thought at the time was an autoimmune response attacking the myelin sheath around the motor nerves, um, which basically means that my motor nerves are damaged so the message doesn't get from the brain down to the muscle. In my case, it's in my legs or my feet, my foot in particular, my left foot, mm-hmm. started off as foot drop. And um, I think in most cases it's hands. My hands are less, are less affected, um, but it does mean that I limp for example, and, and the way it was actually diagnosed was uh, I used to run 5Ks each morning before work and um, I started to trip uh, over. I was just tripping all the time and I was never someone with grace. <laughs> I'm not a graceful person. I'm naturally a klutz, so I just ignored it. But my personal trainer at the time noticed that I also wasn't recovering from weight sessions in the way that I should have been and oh so he... He took me, he was he was playing for the Western Bulldogs football club where he used to, yep. and so he took me to the team doctor there who had a bit of a look. Mm-hmm. They couldn't see anything wrong, and but within a few weeks it was pretty obvious there was something wrong. So I went to the GP and he referred me to a neurologist. Because it was such a rare disease, it did take them quite a while to diagnose. I think it was about three months in the end. Mm. Um, and they don't have a test for my disease. So what they process of elimination. Do, yeah, it was a process of elimination. And you know, as a very fit 29 year old, it was a bit of a shock because mm. I wasn't really thinking it was anything. You know, at first it was like oh it might be a pinched nerve from the exercise. Yeah. Then it was then I started to realise because I was, um, you know, in and out of doctor's surgeries and testing a lot more that the things were escalating in seriousness. So they had to rule out brain tumour. They had to rule out spinal tumour. They were looking um, at things like um, ALS, uh, motor neuron disease. Um, there was some pretty nasty <laughs> pretty nasty things and of all of the things that I could have got I guess mine was the better of the options um obviously it was life-changing but uh, it's not going to kill me and after 23 or 24 years now I also know that you know I'll be okay as long as Mm -hmm. I get blood product regularly but still such a big jump from not recovering from weight sessions and thinking that it might have been like a physio related thing to getting a referral to a neurologist to being dependent on blood donors for the rest of your life that's a pretty oh. big jump <laughs> and you know what it probably took five years to even process and get my head around it. like yeah. I did you know I did the whole you know naive fit healthy 30 year old go to every naturopath take every alternative yeah therapy as well as the as well as the prescribed medical stuff you know I was probably even healthier than I'd ever been Mm. during that period because I did eliminate everything that could be causing or contributing Mm -hmm. Um, in the end none of it helped although Mm. I did have very glowing skin and eyes (laughs) supremely healthy (laughs) but you know Gradually, I took back the red wine and blue cheese and <laughs> all of the things the like chocolate. because I realised we that need all of those things. They contributed to you know happiness and my health in other ways. So you know, yeah, I'm I, I'm still probably healthier than most people I know because mm-hmm. I do keep it relatively clean and mm-hmm. I stay away from germs as much as possible because I'm also immunosuppressed by my medication. Yeah. So that's part of the way that you deal with the autoimmune aspect of it is to suppress your immune system. 
Yeah, look, the, I, for a long time I was only on a blood product right. and it, it was an increasing dose, as you're probably aware. I'm on, to start with, they put me through plasmapheresis. So I had, mm-hmm. I was admitted to hospital and had a process where it's a fairly, for me, it was an unpleasant treatment where they basically tie you down to a, like a cross on a bed and then put, you know, shunts in either arm they drain out your plasma put it through a centrifuge and put donor plasma into the other arm to top Mm -hmm. you up again in my case it didn't work and I was quite grateful for that because I found the process fairly um difficult yeah um it was for me it was really unpleasant I couldn't get out of bed after the treatment I was in a wheelchair for you know 12 hours or something it was I found I hated it really I've got to say this was also a huge shock because it was right after I was diagnosed and you know going from being very young and healthy and happy Mm, yeah um so it was a bit of a shock but then and also I have to say single and very independent, you know, travelling the world, working, you yeah. know, like I'd never relied on anyone before. To, so to suddenly find myself in a position where, you know, I was not only not healthy with no vision of my future anymore, there was no known diagnosis, there was no known treatment, I suddenly couldn't do a lot of the things that I could originally do, even the basic things like climbing the stairs to my apartment in the city or driving the manual car that I had, you know, all of that stuff as a 30-year-old suddenly being taken away from you or potentially taken away from you, that's quite Such shocking. a big switch in your identity yeah. as well. It's not just the physical impact of it. Absolutely and then looking at massive. what your future will look like as well. There were also other things around it which were fairly uh, huge at that stage and I think I didn't, really choose well I guess I chose not to process all of that at the time but obviously once it became apparent that I was going to be um, facing a lifetime medical intervention which I had done um, that took away the option of having children so um, I suddenly found out then that at the age of 30 when my life was perfect and I was possibly getting closer to being ready to settle down that option was removed Mm -hmm. so um you know those things are all fairly big for a had everything fabulously (laughs) before then but you know I I think in the other I guess I'm always I've always been um, a glass half full person and something did switch in my brain I didn't consciously go okay well I'm gonna make the best of it but that is what I did so Mm -hmm. It felt like um, I suddenly was just able to see what I still had. I was, I found myself getting almost frustrated with people who complained because it was just like, oh my God, you know. We hear a lot of that on this podcast. (laughs) Oh my God, exactly. You have no idea. I've got to say, I did have to give myself a slap around the chops a few times because I used to get treated in an oncology ward. Yeah. And I still get treated in an oncology ward. And I used to get very frustrated with some of the oncology patients. I found myself being very lacking in empathy, which I had to then address mm-hmm. uh, with a, a stern word to myself. Because <laughs> I used to I used to wish I had cancer, honestly. Yeah. Because it was like, dude, you'll have three months of treatment and then you'll be better, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> you know. We had that at a stage with Marley where 
we went through similar to what you went through process of elimination and they tested her for some horrific things and we had to I had to really have a good look at myself when I would be disappointed when they would come back and say, no, it's not that. And I think we were just so desperate for an answer so that we could have a treatment rather than this unknown, you know, we're just going to try things and see if it works and the process of elimination similar to what you went through. Well, that's exactly what happened with me. It was the, first of all, the testing, once they then got the diagnosis and you've probably gone through the same thing with Marley they then need to test all of the different products to see yeah. what might work. So the plasmapheresis was unpleasant and it also took months, which meant that my condition was rapidly deteriorating because it wasn't working. And yeah. I soon realised as well that a lot of that is around funding. Yes. Um, so they start with the cheap treatments mm. and then they get to the more expensive treatments or the less available treatments. And mm -hmm. the other thing that was happening was they then give you the doses at the maximum time apart and the smallest doses. So really it was probably 18 months to two years before they got to a treatment regime that actually stopped me deteriorating, Yeah. by which stage I deteriorated quite significantly and I wasn't going to be getting that back. And yeah. it was just a lot of, there's just so much naivety around that. We take so much for granted. Really and yeah, I think, look, I can't begin to imagine what it was like for you because I know how much my parents struggled with what was going on with me. And, the, and I was 30 and, and coping. Mm. <clears throat> to be honest, I didn't probably tell them everything yeah. um, and still don't because it's better. <laughs> Sometimes it's better if parents don't worry because yeah. if they can't do anything, then what's yeah. the point of worrying them? But with a small child and to watch people going through that, it's really difficult because yeah. you don't have all those answers. And sometimes when you do have all those answers, they're not happy ending answers. No. So, um, and the difference with Marley is that because hers um, was autoimmune encephalitis was the diagnosis that she ended up getting. It was her immune system wrongly identifying her healthy brain cells as foreign and attacking her brain. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um that deterioration and the brain injury that she's got from the time that it took to work it out, that will have impacts on her for the rest of her life as well. Um, and yeah, our worst days were, you know, seizures where she was in status epilepticus that lasted for 39 hours was her record length of seizure time. And, you know, that's intubation, ventilation and airlift to a pediatric intensive care unit. Um, and it, you know, it's life-threatening every time one of those things happens. And um, she's in remission at the moment. She's doing brilliantly, but we know what the relapse rate is. And so, you know, we've just got to live our life to the best and the fullest while we can and make the best of those days. How um, but you now? Pardon? How now? So she's six now. So she's blown out three bonus sets of birthday candles, we say. This has been trying to get her since she was three. Um, but she's up to 14 hours a week at school now. Um, she does yoga. She does dance lessons. Um, she's just living a really beautiful life. And yeah. Does she understand it all? Um, she understands the significant trauma that she's been through. She understands that seizures are bad. She knows that she has been sick, but I still don't think that she's spent enough time with her peers to be able to understand what she's missed out on, which is great in a way. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, we just make the best of it and we answer her as honestly as we can with things, but we just try and make her childhood as normal as it can be as well. 
How do her siblings cope with it? Um, they're all on the autism spectrum. So they have a very black and white understanding of the world, I think. Yeah. Um, they're very protective of her. Um, they're fiercely protective siblings. Um, yeah, I think the thing that they hated the most was that we were all split up so much when Marley, especially with her being so immunocompromised during the time that she was at the sickest, um, we would end up in hospital in Sydney my husband, Jeff, and the boys would be in Canberra and, you know, only see each other for a couple of days a month. And it was yeah. really tough times. So we're up on the Sunshine Coast now. We've got a local pediatric intensive care unit and she's quite stable at the moment. So we're just enjoying life as much as we can while things are settled. <laughs> Fingers and toes crossed. And, you know, also all credit to the, you know, as you've pointed out, the continuing Australian funded health system that we Absolutely. have that going. Mm -hmm. I heard on the radio this morning there's another critical plasma shortage um, in Australia at the moment which is terrifying um, and I think probably more terrifying for families and people like ours that depend on that plasma supply is that people are becoming so desensitized to that message of critical plasma shortage because for the last few years it has been so significant and um, that very much plays into what you were saying before about you know the timing between treatments and you know just because people are getting their IVIG doesn't mean that it's at the optimal dosage rates you know at the right yeah. time so you and Marley share a very unique bond both being dependent on intravenous immunoglobulin infusion or as we all affectionately refer to it IVIG um, it's a solution of human plasma proteins with a broad spectrum of antibody activity and it's prepared from large pools of human plasma which are made up from thousands of plasma donations um, used for patients who need replacement of antibodies with autoimmune disorders. And so because you've been having it for 24 years, did you say? 24 years, yeah. 24 years. If there's plasma donors um, that are listening to this, particularly those in Victoria, anyone who's been a plasma donor in the last 24 years, very possibly could have helped to improve your quality of life as significantly as it has because it goes into those big pools of it. Um, so, yeah, we love to say that if you've ever been a blood donor, you could listen to one of these episodes um, and you could be the one who's saved or improved the quality of life of the guest that we have. And so yours is such a beautiful example. If you've been a plasma donor in Victoria in the last 24 years, chances are you've helped Kylie. And <laughs> so thank you very much from me because you've made my life fabulous. And I've got to say, I am responsible for a few people signing up as plasma donors, including Amazing. my wonderful partner, who's um, a very regular plasma donor. He yeah. signed up one year for Christmas when I didn't want anything for Christmas. And um, so <coughs> it's quite a mighty effort for him too, because we don't have anywhere locally to do it. So he has to drive three hours to donate wow. to do that every two weeks when he could. Well, um, we say thank you to him too because plasma donors do. like him keep our family together. <laughs> we do, absolutely. So can you tell me um, how scary it has been for you when there hasn't been enough blood product and you haven't been able to access IVIG in the way that you need to? Oh, look, this actually happened to me really, really early on in the process of having IVIG. I went into the Alfred one morning, I think it was 2003, um, and my nurses sort of greeted me at the, at the front check-in and took me into a private room, which was, you know, odd and worrying. 
um, and basically said, I'm sorry, no product today, go home. Didn't they ring you? And I was actually one of the first patients to have been affected by that. It had only happened overnight. And um, <clears throat> so I rang my neurologist who was mm. the head of neurosciences at the Alfred and he just said, oh, I was waiting for you because he knew that I was a journalist at the age. So uh, I just didn't know what to do. In my case, I, um, I'm not really someone that wasn't going to, I just couldn't go home and, and sit down and, and cry. Mm -hmm. So I ended up at the time ringing or uh, emailing, I think it was, a friend who was a producer with the ABC morning show in Victoria, yep. breakfast show, John Fane. And ended up going on the program the next morning. I think I was on at 7.30 in the morning and it ended up creating such a huge stink that by the next day the National Blood Authority had changed Australian government policy and started to import blood product because wow. in those days you only could get in Australia Intrigam, which was made yep. by CSL and was manufactured out of Australian blood donations. In those days, there was policy that you couldn't have imported blood product. So um, what they had done was basically run out of Intrigam, which was the Australian-made product. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and it was incredible, really, because what happened, I mean, I was on first and was on for five minutes talking about my situation and the situation, Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden there was this flurry, as you would imagine, of phone of calls for other recipients and people who had three children on it who would die without it, someone whose husband was not able to get it. It was just all of ABC radio in Victoria until about midday mm -hmm. ended up being about that. Um, I was interviewed on 7.30 report that night. It just went everywhere. Yeah, And it was really a magnificent example of how fairly simple patient advocacy with the right contacts, obviously I was a journalist, so I knew how yeah. to get in touch with them and say this is outrageous, yeah, um, Yeah, can actually change government decision. And mm. I've got to give them credit because it was an expensive decision. It wasn't a cheap thing for them to do. They did, it was a significant shift in federal and state government policy to do that, but it frankly, saved the lives of a lot of us who were relying on it, including me, because at that stage we didn't know whether that yep. was just going to affect my ability to walk or if it would kill me, you know. Mm -hmm. It was a really big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think within days I was able to go into the hospital and get my treatment. But it really also, for me, brought home um, the reality that most of this is funding-based. It was too expensive they couldn't get more. They didn't want to spend more. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, all of us little folks who were relying on this stuff um, were falling between the cracks. Yeah. And I do understand that that's difficult. I'm not naive about that. Clearly there is a cap on what they can expect people to pay in taxes. None of this is free. All of the health services we get are paid for by someone. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, when we say it's a free health service, in fact, it's not a free health service. Someone's paying for it. It's just that it's coming out of the tax taxpayer yep. um, funding. And, you know, mm -hmm. maybe if I get my IBIG, it means a pothole isn't 
fixed somewhere yeah. on the road somewhere else or whatever yeah. it is. I do understand that there are, you know, that there are balances, but that was a really terrifying moment. And yeah, it was. I don't ever take it for granted anymore, my treatment. See, that's our worst nightmare. So the way that Marley's um, immunology team explain it is that when she relapses, IVIG is life-saving for her and that it's life-preserving for every infusion in between. Now, depending on the frequency of that, at one stage we were on the double doses of the protocol for IVIG. We would go in for three days and have um, IVIG steroid infusions at the double dose go home for seven days, go in for three days, go home for seven days. And we did that for nine months when she was at her sickest after her third relapse. And that was at the height of the pandemic as well. So there was a lot of considerations in having her in a hospital during that time, because that was a scary thing to do. Um, But if during any of that stage, or if she relapses tomorrow, which we know is always possible, if the product isn't there to be able to save her, then like that's terrifying. And one of the scariest things for me is to work, walk onto a donor floor to do my plasma. And so often I'm the only person there. And so you understand those critical plasma shortages. I guess we're so acutely aware of it because it's something that impacts our lives so much, but yeah, to, if we have to be told that and we haven't got the plasma that we need, if she relapses tomorrow, I think what's so terrifying too about something like the pandemic, clearly that has had an impact on Australian blood donation and plasma donation because when you're sick, you can't donate. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And and there are other reasons that you can't donate, although there are fewer of them than I think most people realise. One of the things that I say to people, I, I get a lot, oh, I couldn't do it, I'm afraid of needles. It's like, oh, my God. Dude, I have a portacath implant in my chest. I don't really like having needles either, but they keep me alive. And you yeah. know what? A little needle prick is a whole lot better than, you know, dying, frankly. Yeah, and if you, can, if you can maybe give blood now, mm-hmm. maybe you'll be saving the child that you haven't yet had mm-hmm. or the child that you do have and is going to get sick tomorrow and you don't know it or your parents or your neighbour yeah. or a loved one just mm-hmm because you don't like needles as far as I'm concerned not really a good enough no so little side story Marley um calls her portacath we've actually got it out at the moment because it needs to be replaced um but she calls it her special button and she's always we don't know where it came from but she's always called it special button and she's got the scar from where it was in and we're going to move it down onto her rib cage um but she calls it her special bravery line now and when she needs to be brave she'll rub that scar because she figures I've got, oh. I don't know whether you can see that, I've got yeah. cats here. I've actually got a tattoo of a dandelion being yeah. blown there because it reminds me of the good luck I've got with having free and easy medical care in Australia. And I just thought one of my regular nurses, when I first got the tattoo, one of my regular nurses said, you know, no, that's it's a weed that can't be killed with drugs it's you Kylie you know a weed that can't be killed with poison I just laughed I've got to say she's my penny is very very practical (laughs) whichever way you see it it's right isn't it you know I'm writing that down so that we can quoted as part of the promo <laughs> I have to say I did oh maybe I should be speaking more clearly 
that's brilliant. I did actually think afterwards, and I did suggest to the nurses a couple of times what I really needed was a you know bullseye <laughs> so that they know exactly where to aim. Yeah. This bit but just here. <laughs> I did have I, I resisted actually for a very long time getting a portacath, um, mm. partly because of um the idea of you know scars and mm. implants in my breast also because I'm immunosuppressed I also take a fairly nasty immunosuppressant drug twice a day which mm-hmm. um, turns off my immune system to shut down the autoimmune response mm-hmm. I am because of the pandemic the neuroteam is actually uh, easing me off that one but because it's quite a nasty drug and I've been on it for a long time they're easing me off it over two years so we'll see if that yeah. makes a difference um, which means my IVIG might increase, but yep. yeah, we'll see. There are there's lots of research being done into all of these things now, so I'm also hopeful of you know miracle or yeah. scientific research coming. You up just never time. know, do you? You just you don't know how much things are going to change, and that's the thing. Had Marley been diagnosed with what she was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we wouldn't still have her now. And it's amazing the advances that have happened, even in the time, you know, the last couple of years since she's been diagnosed, and different cases we've heard about all over the world, and the amount that they're learning now, it's just well, phenomenal. But I no amount said- of scientific knowledge or medical advances is going to overcome exactly the bond that you two share and it's Australian plasma donors and human kindness is what keeps you guys alive and it's what improves your quality of life every single day so absolutely so grateful that's what this podcast is all about is thanking those Australian blood donors and it's fantastic that you do it too so thank thank you you. for that because there's only so many ways that we as as recipients can Mm. thank donors yeah, I thought that before when you didn't have, um, it wasn't available and you're like, I wasn't just going to go home. I had to do something about this. I'm like, woman of my own heart, because that's exactly what this <laughs> podcast is. Different well, way of attacking it, but very I similar in, motivation. I do it in little ways as well. A couple of times, um, Brett, my partner actually works for the Victoria Police and right. they, he gets some colleagues to donate as well mm-hmm. as part of that and they do do a challenge every now and again where they'll all go and donate if the, if the donation bus comes to town. Yeah, And he also, um, I've been in with him to donate sometimes and they've got a whiteboard in, their, in, the, in the bus that visits and so mm-hmm. I actually wrote on the whiteboard, you know, yep. thank you to all donors, you're keeping me going and Brett actually wrote which I thought was beautiful I only saw it afterwards a little love heart underneath saying I'd do it for her with an arrow and I just thought that made me cry I know I'm not gonna that's so special (laughs) but I just thought I really love the idea that all these people in there suddenly see something like that because it's not just giving blood it's actually giving blood for someone or yeah. for lots of someone's mm. and to put a face on those someone's I think actually makes a difference. Mm. I, I work in communications and it's all about personalising the end result. Yeah, um, it's all about storytelling. Yeah. And we say that to people all the time. It doesn't just keep Marley alive, but it keeps a little sister with her big brothers and it keeps us together as a family. And it's just, yeah. Australian blood donors are just the most phenomenal people. Exactly. I really appreciate it. To change a little bit, this hasn't been the only big challenge in your life. Can you tell me about losing your farm to the bushfires? Oh, look, it's, yeah, we had 
we had a really difficult, uh, we've had a very difficult three years, not just with the pandemics, but we live in East Gippsland, which uh, like so many other places in Australia was very, very badly affected in the black summer bushfires. Yeah. Um, in some ways we were lucky, we didn't lose our, lose our house, but we do have a little hobby farm and uh, it was completely torched. We're, we're in Wairiwa, which is right in the middle of um, one of the worst hit areas mm-hmm. <coughs> uh, of the 22 houses in our little community. Um, I think 12 of them went. Wow. So, it was a, yeah, that was a really difficult thing. Um, like I've said to you already, I do try and turn negatives into positives. And so as a result, of that um I did then apply for a grant um to through the federal government to write about that process and with a friend Craig Sheetha I then um wrote a children's picture book called Heroes of Black Summer as a tool to assist children in our region and elsewhere to process the traumas associated Mm -hmm. with living through the fires. Um, As anyone who lived through Black Summer would appreciate, the fires were terrible, but it was actually a three-month process. We we lived with fire threat for three months. You know, the fires weren't just there over that weekend when Mm. we lost our properties. It was you know, weeks of threat and then weeks afterwards where it just didn't go away. They couldn't get the fires out. So it was constant threat. The roads were all closed. There was smog everywhere. Mm-hmm. It was terrible. I mean, it, my whole shire, I think, was evacuated five times um, via text message from the Victorian government. It was terrible. And mm-hmm. we lost 58% of the shire got burnt out. So we're a shire that from where I am to Malakuta is a four-hour drive. Our local member is legally allowed to fly from one end to the other. So that's how big the Shire is and that's the scale of the catastrophe. Um, But then from that as well, uh, I I actually love the process of writing the children's picture book and we hit a bit of a a, a hot subject clearly. There was Mm. need and we had the launch a, a week after the book actually went on sale and incredibly the book sold out before we'd even had an opportunity to launch it so Australian Geographic published our little book uh, 2000 print run and the and and sold out they had to reprint before we'd even launched it so it obviously was um successful in that it hit a need I mean they're not massive numbers but you know for Australian it's it's massive to both children and those families that benefited from it though and that would have been why you you know we just got great a great sense of achievement out Mm. of that knowing that I actually as part of the contract I negotiated with Australian Geographic to donate 500 copies to fire affected communities and schools around Australia too so we did that Mm. um, which is also very satisfying Fire Recovery Victoria distributed them around the state here for Mm. us um, and then I went on and started writing other children's picture books because I was in pandemic mode and couldn't really go out anywhere um, in between working um, for my own sort of communications consultancy. I just did loads of online courses and uh, learnt some of the formulas of writing picture books and ended up mm-hmm. getting a publisher. So I've done another 
three with that publisher. Uh, one came out in April, May. I've got the next one coming out in at the end of October mm-hmm. and then another one next year. So what's so the one that's coming exciting. out at the end of October? Are you allowed to tell us about the one that's coming out at the end of October? Yes, I am. I, I don't have it. There's still only, uh, she has, I saw it last week. There is one copy that she's got the publisher print version of, but I believe that the shipment is headed for our distributor and on its way to bookshops on the 22nd of October. Yeah. But it's about, the first one I wrote uh, on my own was Albert the Greyhound Who Loves to Run. Yeah. Uh, we have adopted greyhounds and... Right. It was about our first adopted boy who was anxious and he scaled our fence at home and spent nine weeks on the run because he was scared of our cat. So I fictionalised that story uh, and turned that into a children's picture book following all the children's picture book rules. And that that one's actually sold really well in the Greyhound um adoption groups and also incredibly the greyhound racing industry uh, yeah, right. programs so they've i've recently been down to the melbourne royal show as a guest of the victorian state government greyhound adoption program yeah doing children's book readings for Amazing. all the people that came to pat a greyhound yeah and the the second so i've written a three book series based around the greyhounds but using themes that mean something to me they're mostly they're really the themes of acceptance belonging resilience self-love overcoming Mm. adversity they're they're overcoming anxiety they're the they're the the themes that resonate with me and I think probably resonate with certainly some children if not all children so that's what that's what Albert is I can see Albert in the background there (laughs) this is Albert (laughs) yeah oh this is wonderful and look we'll pop a link to all of that information (laughs) in our show notes as well um so many of our listeners have children that are um affected by different medical conditions and I'm sure a lot of those themes could be translated to some of that work as well so um we'll pop all of that information in there so our listeners know where to find you um we love to highlight the things through this podcast that people wouldn't have been otherwise able to do even if it's not life-saving but contributions to community and contributions to the world. And those picture books are such a beautiful example. Had Australian blood donors not given you the product that you needed, you wouldn't have been able to write those books and give so much to Australian community through what you do. So thank you. That's just such a beautiful project that you've got. I have to say, taking it another step, Mm. no one would ever wish to get sick or to get a condition that requires the kind of medical intervention that I've required or that Marley's required. Yeah. But it has actually given me a whole new perspective on life. And I do feel constantly like my life in a lot of ways is better than it would have been had I not been sick because all of the things that I've done that have got me to the place that I am now, I've probably done largely because I got sick. So you know, at the time I was very career motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still career motivated, but in a very different way. different way. I moved to the country to avoid the risks that were associated with traveling on public transport, going mm-hmm. up to an office in lifts, all of those things that 
we now recognise uh, a threat to some people's health, but have been a threat to my health for 24 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, you appreciate that because you've done the same thing to a degree. You know, mm. all of those life-changing things that I've done have put me in a better position than I would have been, mm. or at least with a very different perspective to the perspective yeah. that I think I would have had had I not had that. And for that, I don't regret any of it. Mm. obviously well, they, I'm lucky that I'm alive like I didn't yeah. I'm not saying that you know everything's peachy there's a lot that makes my situation better than others oh. but, but at the same good. time I think I have actually been able to adjust and benefit mm. you know, in a weird way mm. well I think that's a beautiful place to round it out so what message do you have for Australian blood donors um, who have continued to improve the quality of your life or for anyone who's considering donating in the future? For everyone that has donated so far, thank you very much. Years and years ago, I calculated that it took something like 9,000 donations to create one dose for me. Um, yeah. I'm on a significantly higher dose more frequently than then, so mm -hmm. it will be more than that. So I am fairly confident that for almost every blood donor in Victoria, I've had some of your blood and I appreciate it. It's changed my life and kept me going, yeah. kept me paying taxes to keep the health system ticking over. Yeah. If you're considering it, thank you very much for at least considering it. If you can go ahead, mm -hmm. please do. We'd all really appreciate it. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Kylie. And it's a joy to have you as part of the Milkshakes for Marley community. Thanks, Kate. And thank you very much, Marley, for inspiring mum and dad to be doing this. Good luck with everything in the future. Awesome. Thank you. I'm so grateful to Kylie for sharing her story and allowing us an insight into how Australian blood donors have so significantly improved her quality of life and led her to create her line of children's books for children who have experienced trauma and challenges. I'll pop a link to how you can find her books in the show notes. Nothing feels more Australian, like the modern demonstration of mateship than donating blood or breast milk, and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift, and it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their stories and to give thanks. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Fisher. Today's guest was Kylie Miller. Audio production by my husband and Marley's dad, Jeff. If today has inspired you to make a blood donation, we would love it if you could add your donation to the Milkshakes for Marley Lifeblood team. You can just request this when you book in for your donation. And if any organisations would like to put their donations in under the Milkshakes for Marley Lifeblood team, we would love that as well. You still get to have your own Lifeblood team. It just means that it gets counted towards our uh, tally as well. And it's a really great way of tracking all of the people that have been inspired to donate blood through hearing Marley's story. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please let us know if you have a story to share or to nominate guests you would like me to interview by DMing me through the Milkshakes for Marley Instagram page. And as always, I'll leave the final word to Marley. Thank you for my prize, Marley.